electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The big question for investors, is the environment improving for stocks or deteriorating? We have arguments on both sides of that great debate which we take to the investment committee this hour. Joining me today, Stephanie Link, Amy Raskin with me right here on set. We have Jim Labenthal and Josh Brown. Let's check the market, see where the trade is on this Tuesday afternoon. Dow is good for about 87 and a third. We're in green across the board, including the 10-year note yield. 291 uh, is where we are today. All right, Josh, so you have some major moves. We're going to get to those in a few minutes, so don't don't do the big reveal just yet. Major? Major. I think major they're major. Ish. I think they're major. Major-ish. Right. I'll, I'll split the difference with you. Okay. I want to start with Amy, though, uh, because really what jumped out to me in some of the pre-show notes, Amy, and, and look, you, you've been, I think, fair to say, uh, one of the more cautious investors that we've had on the show in the last six months or so. You are less so today, right? I'm less bearish yeah. than I was in January is what you told our producers. Why? Well, I just think a lot of the bad news has now been priced in. We were really cautious coming into the year. At the beginning of the year, there were only three 25-bit um, Fed hikes priced into the markets. People were still in the transitory camp. Um, we thought inflation would be more durable. But now everybody I talk to is bearish, and the market's down 20 percent. Um, and at one point a few weeks ago, we had gotten to 16 price hikes. You know, people had 4 percent. Fed funds at the end of the year, and we thought that was overdone. So we did make some moves um, a few weeks ago. We got a little bit more aggressive. We added. Um, I'm not saying I'm wildly bullish by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think the risk reward is certainly more balanced here than it was um, six months ago. Mm. Steph, have we overdone it? Is Amy right? Did things just get too negative? I mean, Jim Labenthal will probably tell you that when I go to him next. But but how about that story that some are now trying to tell that things got way too negative? And it's time to get a little more optimistic than maybe we thought we could be uh, even a month or so ago. They're very negative, right? And we are pricing in a lot of bad news. But the problem is we still have so many unknowns in the near term. So you have to separate. Are you near term focused or long term focused? Long term focused, I want to be in equities. I want to have a balanced, diversified portfolio. But if I'm near term focused and mindful of better opportunities to add along the way, that's where I'm at at this very moment. Although I have been slowly putting money to work over the last couple of weeks, you and I have talked about it mainly on overtime. Uh, but near term, we have to deal with data. We have to deal with not only CPI and PPI, but we have to deal with retail sales and University of Michigan sentiment and PPIs and manufacturing data next week. And I don't think it's going to be that good. Look at the NHIB, Small Business Optimism Index, 
coming in the lowest level since 2013. So sentiment is really, really cautious, but I still think we have to get through that. Mm -hmm. Of course, we have to get through the Fed. We have got to go from them being hawkish to either neutral or dovish. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. And they've right. got a terrible track record of soft landing. And then lastly, we have to get through earnings. I think earnings are going to be okay, but obviously we're all waiting for the guidance. Mm -hmm. The guidance could be the one catalyst that pulls stocks down one more time to be a more aggressive in mm -hmm. buying. So let me ask you this. Are, are you inclined to be a buyer of dips or a seller of rips at the present time? Yeah, I'm a, no, I'm a, I'm a buyer. I'm a buyer. We talked about Berkshire being a new, a new name. I got to tell you, I really like this Pepsi quarter, and I can't believe it's not up even more. Uh, some of the technologies that in this technology stocks, you know I'm underweight. I'm looking at opportunities there. So absolutely, I'm more of a buyer. That's my longer-term thinking, though. Mm -hmm. But I'm also mindful that I could get a better look, right? Because if guidance is coming down, stocks are not going higher. Yeah. So I think I know what Jim Leventhal is going to say. So I want to go to Josh first. So get him out of here. I want Josh to set the. I want you to set the table uh, for him. So I mean, you heard what the ladies had to say. What's your perspective here on what is a big week for the market? Earnings kicking off, CPI tomorrow, and you know a lot of other stuff on our plate too. Yeah. So we're going to start with the financials, and the financials actually are leading today, which is interesting. I'm long J.P. Morgan. Stock looks like it wants to make a run at this 200-day moving average um, and possibly get itself into an uptrend for the first time since November. Um, so there are like small little highlights like that each day. You can always find like one or two positive things to talk about. But big picture, we reinverted the yield curve, the, the most inverted it's been since 2007, just in the last week or so. Um, and quite frankly, uh, Wall Street consensus estimates for this quarter's earnings are up about 5%, which is pretty weak relative to uh, recent history and decelerating rapidly. Uh, a lot of people are still hiding out in the tech giants or the communications giants. They think that those earnings streams will somehow magically not be susceptible to a decelerating economy. They'll find out the hard way that that won't be true. Um, we've already heard from Microsoft. Don't expect anything good. That's a prelude to, oh, actually, things are getting worse. You'll see the same thing out of Meta. Alphabet won't be immune. So it's not going to be fun. There will be a lot of minds in the minefield. There will be some companies that are unaffected or put up good quarters, Pepsi being an example of that. I think that, unfortunately, those will be few and far between. Mm -hmm. I don't paint this picture, though, to tell you, like, you know, go to cash or everything's terrible. This is what you have to live through. This is the, the way the cycle works. And I've always looked at, you know, overall markets or overall sectors just in the context of, like, not every day is your birthday. Not every day. Is, so one of the things that I've repeatedly emphasized on the show, mm -hmm. you know, Stephanie's bullish, Jim's bullish, I'm bearish, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of this is a, is a difference in time frame. I don't think you'll be upset if you buy a stock today and you look at it three years from now. I do think you will two weeks from now. Well, let me ask you so this. That, that's really what we're, we're debating on the desk. Do you, do you think the risk reward for stocks has improved? Because I think that's what Amy is suggesting. She's 100% and, right. And that's also what Marco Kalanovic of J.P. Morgan is suggesting as well as you move into the second She's half of the year. She's 100% right. You're, buy, you're buying stocks uh, at a 30% at a discount to what the forward earnings multiple was just six months ago. So, like, statistically, you're already in a better position than you were. So we're not talking about you know, 10-year returns from these levels. What we're saying is, like, are there better buying opportunities looming on the horizon? And if you, if you pull out 
multiples and all of the things that are not good timing signals. And just look at what is. We are in a statistical downtrend, downward sloping 200-day moving average. The highs are lower than the previous highs. The lows are lower than the previous lows. It's a stair-step pattern lower. It's no fun. No one's enjoying it. But it's what it is. So you either can admit that or you can't admit that. And a lot of the people that can't admit that are long only, long all the time, got to buy something. So if you're not in that camp, congratulations. This is a good environment to relax. Look at me. Look at me. This is what the kids call a glow up. Okay. <laughs> I'm not worried about the next 10% in the nice S&P. Nice tan going on there. What will be, will be. Fresh new dew. Um, I mean, I guess it comes down to, like Josh said, what your expectations are over a, over a specific period of time. Even those who think that the back half of this year can be good, like Fundstrat's Mark Newton suggests, new lows are likely. That, that's his call, that you're going to hit a new low, but that you're going to have a decent recovery. Kalanovic, who I just referenced, does say that, you know, if you don't have an economic disaster, those were his words, um, that he believes that risky assets can substantially recover. Yeah. So I think everybody knows where you sit. Yeah. But what do you make of all of that? Well, yeah, and, and everybody does know where I sit and a long-term investor. I want to, you know, add something that's helpful here. And Josh gave me the perfect cue. Like, the next two weeks, nobody knows what's going to happen, right? You think, you, the, think anybody knows what's going to be CPI tomorrow? Forget it. But what I will say is that CPI probably has an asymmetric risk to move the markets higher. And here's why I say it. It's going to be a terrible number, folks. It's going to have an eight handle. might even be higher, okay? But it doesn't matter because look at one of the most crucial aspects of inflation for the consumer, it's gasoline. And gasoline futures are down 25% in a month. That hasn't shown up in the pumps yet. It's not going to show up in June CPI, but it is going to show up in the near future. What that's going to do is help consumer sentiment, which has been one of the main sandbags holding this market down. Yes, the Fed's the other one, but let me just stay on consumer sentiment right now. If the consumer starts to feel better, if these surveys start to turn up, you know what's also going to turn up? Investor sentiment, which is Josh ably pointed out, is terrible right now. I don't know what's going to happen in the next two weeks, but I'll tell you what I'm looking at, and I'm looking at gasoline futures, and it's telling me there's probably more good news to come than bad. It's telling you there's a recession on the way. Well, wait, let me, let me, let me take this. Good point, okay? But, but you, what, refuse, you, just, you just disagree with that, though. Well, it's not. Here's, here's what I disagree with. Let me, let me be very clear. There could be a recession. There could be a recession. Well, when was the last but, 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 time gasoline on. prices fell 27 days in a row? Okay, did but that lead to an expansion? When's the last time they you know, rose the same. in the same thing? I mean, it just did a ballistic arc is what I'm saying. And the main point, the reason that I'm not in the recession camp is the labor market. Um, you, you know, if people are employed, they are going to go out and consume. What I think is happening in the markets right now, and our friend Bill Ackman, I think, really nailed it on the head. We've got roughly 7% nominal GDP growth right now. In any other year, that would be fabulous. If we had 7% nominal GDP growth five years ago, we'd have 5% real GDP growth. But we don't. We have negative real GDP growth because of how high inflation is. Let me invert what you're saying, though. People aren't stupid. So when, when the labor market is as, is as tight as it is now and people can get jobs, but the job they get does not offer them a salary increase commensurate with what their rent is going to cost, they're not stupid. For them, Until it feels like... Until inflation comes down. Well, it feels like a recession when your costs are rising 10% Until and your cop is rising down. 3%. Josh, it, you're, you're, forgive me. I'm interrupting you. You are right, but I'm also right when I say until inflation comes down, which, again, I come back to where I started. Look at gasoline so futures. There are, there are some who suggest 
recession or not, stocks are still mispriced based on economic data, right? PMI's weak, interest rates going up, earnings revisions um, are the backdrop that we're going to have to live with. That's Mike Wilson. He's our headliner today. He is with us live. So, Mike, you've heard the conversation here, and that's really what it boils down to. Recession or not, you think that the stock market is still mispriced? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty easy case to be made that we're still overvalued because the earnings are too high, right? I mean, look, Scott, we laid this out nine months ago, the fire and ice narrative, right? The fire played out. People caught on to that. Uh, We weren't sure, you know, how slow the economy was going to get, but the data's just gotten worse, which is why we continue to be bearish because Mm -hmm. we don't see the rate of change bottoming anytime soon on the three metrics you just mentioned, whether it's PMIs, earnings revisions, uh, consumer confidence, which is in the tank and typically, you know, doesn't rebound unless there's some sort of positive catalyst. And then, of course, you have the Fed and they're not backing off because they can't. So it's just a vice. That's the that is literally the fire and ice narrative to a T. The Fed is tightening into a slowdown because they have to because of inflation. And that's just where we are. And we're just not finished with it yet. OK, so let's do this. Rather than the two of us spar with one another. <laughs> I want to bring in Jim Labenthal um, because I want you to have this conversation with somebody who's got skin in the game, who has repeatedly made the argument that the landscape is much better than people like you paint it as. I'm going to turn it over to Jim. No mercy. And I I want you to have a conversation with Mike as to why he's wrong. Okay. Why is he too negative? Well, it's, this floor is yours. And first off, Mike, you've been right. So let's get let's make sure that that's clear. I'm acknowledging that. Here's where I disagree with you, and I'd love to get your feedback on this. You say earnings are going to come down. What about the fact that earnings are, and revenue are basically measured in nominal terms, that inflation in the short run is going to, in fact, perhaps help earnings? I know that's a controversial statement. And you might say back to me, yeah, but what does it do to the multiple? Well, the multiples already come down from whatever, 22 to 15. I'd love your feedback on earnings being measured in nominal terms, not real. No, Jim, that's a very, that's a good argument. That is the argument, um, which is basically the argument we made two years ago when we said inflation was coming, and that's why you're going to have such good earnings growth. I'm in the camp that inflation is peaking, okay? And I think inflation is going to surprise on the downside over the next six to nine months pretty significantly, because of the other thesis that we had, which is that we overconsumed, we never had a major supply problem. We had a logistical problem. Now inventories are catching up, and we're going to have deflation in a lot of different areas. So profits are inflated because of inflation. Now they're going to deflate because we're going to have deflation in a lot of different areas. So your, your argument is valid. However, I assume that inflation is peaking. So you must assume that inflation is going to stay hot and that pricing power is going to remain robust in, a, in an environment where we're already seeing demand destruction and consumer confidence is tanking. Mike, I, I, I might be paraphrasing you, but I think what you're saying is that aggregate demand is going to go down in a recession, right? This is what Josh was saying a second ago, uh, and that's going to bring inflation down. What I, would, I think you're saying that. What I would submit to you is aggregate demand is probably going to stay just fine, particularly because of CapEx in terms of supply chain onshoring and infrastructure. Well, I think that's a I think that's a good argument for next year. I don't think that's a valid argument today because companies right now are very focused on, you know, margin pressure and trying to make the numbers. 
And typically, when you see that kind of an environment, CapEx actually disappointments. I agree with your, your thesis longer term, Jim. I think you're right on. I just think we have to go through this valley still. And the other thing that's coming up is the election, which is going to be very contentious. Um, and that doesn't you know, usually embody corporate confidence, which is something we haven't even talked about yet. I mean, yeah, consumer confidence is down a lot, but corporate confidence is just as bad, whether it's the, the small business company index that, that uh, Stephanie referenced, or it's a larger company confidence. So I, I just think your timing's off on the CapEx cycle. I think it's right on in the intermediate term basis. So you're, but you're telling me that you see inflation coming down um, significantly. You use the word significantly in, in the months ahead. And the stock market's not going to do well in that environment, which will take pressure off the Fed to be as hawkish as they are today? Well, that's an interpretation you can have, Scott. I mean, my interpretation is inflation's coming down because demand is short. And that, therefore, you're going to have a profit shortfall and the risk of recession is elevated. So, look, if we don't have the profit shortfall and a demand destruction, then inflation is not going to come down. OK, but you're not going to get inflation down without you know, demand missing. Right. That's that's the that's sort of the crux of the argument. Well, but, so you, but you, can't, you can't have it both ways. No, but you can have demand come down because the Fed wants demand to, to come down without having a full blown recession also. Right. Absolutely. And that's and that's our that's still our base case. Right. You now, the bear case is the recession. But even in that scenario, our analysis suggests that you're still going to have margin degradation. You still have you still have uh, demand destruction in big areas of the economy like housing. My guess is it's probably coming in, in other durable goods as well. And, and that's going to that's going to lay on profit growth. OK, so even in the soft landing scenario, we think profits are going to disappoint over the next two to three quarters. Hey, hey, Mike, it's Josh Brown. Thanks so much for joining us today. I agree with what a, a lot of what you had to say. I think one of the things that makes this so challenging for stock market people, as opposed to um, people mainly focused on economics, is that the stock market moves so much faster than the economic data. So, like, for example, you look at what's going on in new homes. It's literally falling off a cliff. Like It's, it's like somebody flipped off a light switch is... Uh, the most apt analogy. But the new home sales part of the market is tiny compared to existing home sales. And for existing home sales, while activity has decreased, prices still remain high. Rents still remain high. So it takes a long time for that weakness where it starts with with trying to build new homes that you you just can't right now. Um, Auto loans is another example. We just we just saw this uh, we just saw this uh, in Barron's uh, subprime auto loans exploding, L- literally even prime loans uh, doubling in delinquency. Those things play out slowly. The stock market moves every day so quickly. Do you agree that that's where so much of the disconnect is coming from and why people are having a hard time getting to where you already are about the worsening environment? Well, and I don't think I'm on an island. I think a lot of people agree with a lot of things that you know I've been saying, and and I think the market agrees with that too. And I, but I, and I also agree with your your conclusion, which is markets are forward thinking. I mean, you know, yeah, we were early on kind of getting on this train last year because we manage a lot of money. We have to be early. We have to get out of the way early, and so we're probably going to be early trying to get back in. But even with that context, Josh, I mean, I think it's premature, right, to say to try and call the bottom and rate of change because you have, you know, we haven't had the data really even peak yet. It is lagging, right? I mean, if you think about the Fed itself, right, the Fed looks at two major markets, right, labor markets and inflation. Those are two of the most lagging indicators that we have. I mean, they really are. 
So, you know, they're going to be late by design, both on hiking, and they're going to be late by design on loosening. And that's fine. The market will, you know, eventually figure it out, and it'll, it'll get in front of that. But we're not there yet. I mean, I just... The high-frequency stuff, right. The high-frequency stuff is is deteriorating faster than those lagging indicators can catch up. Right. So credit cards, exactly. debit card spending, auto loans, Correct. that stuff's going bad fast. But the Fed is looking at something so, that's moving slower. Let me do this. So l- let me get the ladies in. Uh, Amy, I mean, you were on Wilson Island for a while, and now you have sailed off to a sunnier place. Mike has not. Um, <laughs> what, what's your take? Well, I, I actually, Scott, I agree with your interpretation. I, I do agree with Mike that inflation is going to start coming down and start coming down pretty fast. And I think earnings might come with it. But this whole sell-off happened with earnings estimates going up. So actually, I think sort of counterintuitively, when earnings start to come down and people have that bearish view, I think you'll get multiples expanding a little bit. And so I actually think Mike's scenario will be good for markets. You know, honestly, I'm, I'm more sanguine for the back half. Like 2023, I think, is a different story. And then I think inflation sort of ends up higher and then you, you'll get a, a structural shift at that point. But I, I sort of agree with your interpretation, whereas, you know, we're going to have a big slowdown. The Fed's going to pivot and, you know, sort of counterintuitively, that's mm. going to be good for markets because, you know, earnings, everybody knows earnings are coming down. Um, so I think it might be, you know, sort of in the market already, whereas I, I guess Mike disagrees with that. OK, Mike, last word. Well, I mean, I think the market is priced it through the multiple. But, you know, my experience is you cannot you know, get excited right, to call like a major low until the revisions have come down at least halfway where they're eventually going, right? So in the soft landing scenario, that's probably three to 5%. In a, you know, in a recessionary scenario, it's probably 10 to 12%. That's the halfway point. So, you know, we'll be on it. We're, we're on top of it. We're monitoring it. We're not going to get dogmatic here. Um, but, you know, I just don't think the risk reward at 3,900 is particularly great given the you know, revisions that we see in the next two quarters. Mm. All right. We'll continue to have the conversation. I know we will. Mike, I appreciate your time. All right. Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley. Up next, I told you Josh Brown was making some major moves, major-ish, he said, in the market. Well, he's going to reveal those next. You don't want to miss that. We're back after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. 
Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, still green across the board. Let's do these major-ish moves with Josh Brown. Number one, I want to talk about the new stock that you bought, okay? Okay. You tell me, Encore Capital Group, ECPG, $1.5 billion market cap. Can I, can I just start with, please don't go buy the stock because I'm talking about it today. You do this every time. No, just go. Because I'm, I'm a good guy. Because Please don't just go buy it. Just, just like do a little bit of research, wait two days. Don't buy something just because it gets mentioned on TV. Just listen to me. This is, I have a small position. I intend to add to it. This is the biggest publicly traded debt collector in America, also operating in Europe. They've been around since the 1950s in one form or another. Basically, this is an essential part of, of, uh, of life. You may not love debt collection, but we are going to have a very big uptick in non-performing loans, auto loans, credit card loans, you name it. It's happening, real estate related. And this is the company that thrives in an environment like that because the more portfolios of non-performing loans out there, the more, the more money they can make. They do one of two things. Either they will purchase a portfolio of non-performing loans, pennies on the dollar, and then go run them down and work things out with the, the debtors, or they will get hired to service a portfolio of non-performing loans. But either way, that's the next bull market. Uh, if you think we're going into a recession, then you'd be even more bullish than I am. I'm not quite so sure that'll happen. But Look at the chart. Let's let's throw this up. Do we have a very long term chart, guys? Pa- Patty, where are you? Don't leave me hanging. Don't leave me. Hang- <laughs> Were you on a lifetime chart? Girl, don't leave me hanging, Patty. Uh, all right. All right. They're working I'll, it out. I'll vamp while they're doing that. Uh, this is this is technically one of the best looking stocks <laughs> in the market right now. Um, well, it's not, it's not so fun. No, go ahead. <laughs> uh, this is a stock that's going up while the market is going down. Why is that the case? Well, it's because people understand that there are, unfortunately, some industries that do better when people are doing worse. And that's the reality. Patty's trying her best, by the way. The, the system is down at the I moment. can't stay mad at her. It's okay. <laughs> uh, what are we doing next? Uh, okay, that was it. You're, you're done with that riff. Yeah, and don't, don't blindly buy stocks like there's a billion and a half dollar market cap. So, like, let it settle. Don't go crazy. Okay. okay next. All right. You sold the first sell uh, you have is FedEx, which you bought on June 9th. You in that? No. Okay. So about a month you're in it. Yeah, I got out. Uh, why'd I, you get out? It, it, I ended up being right, but I stayed too long. So I bought it going into the first uh, shareholders meeting, uh, the first investor day that the company was holding in 10 years. I thought that would be a great catalyst. It was. The stock ran up. They announced a huge dividend increase, et cetera. Um, and then it started rolling back over again. So I didn't want to turn a profit into a loss. I still think it's a great company. I think it's a cheap stock. Um, but I think I kind of missed the, the high price. And I'm still up. So I just said, forget it. I'll, I'll revisit later. So three and a half weeks ago, you bought Zoom. Yep, and now thing. you're out. Same thing. I nailed it. Um, but then it started to roll back over again. Don't want to turn a profit into a loss. Okay. All by right. the way, by the way, yeah. I think more people should do this. If you've been listening to me this year, because I think we're in this downtrend, this bear market, when I am going into new stocks, I'm always saying this is where I'm putting my stop loss or this is how much I'm willing to let this thing go until I say, OK, the market says I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Um, not every environment doesn't make sense to have such tight stops. 
Um, but in this environment, I think it does. So I actually think it's very productive to recognize before you buy something, is it an investment or is it a trade? What I'm doing with ECPG, I think is probably a year-long investment. When I'm going into FedEx and I'm saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to utilize a 10% trailing stop or I'm going to use the 200-day moving average as a pivot point. What you're basically saying is, I am willing to admit when I'm wrong here and not take a 20 or 30% loss if the overall market sells off again. And I think distinguishing between when are you an investor, when are you a trader, has never been more important than it is this year. When are you, what, what, what signal you're looking for that tells you we're coming out of the bear market, if you, if you still think we're in one? What's, what are oh, you looking I'll, for? I'll be the last to know because I'm looking at technicals. So I'll, I'll know later after it's happened. Like, I'm not going to be able to predict anything. Nobody should, nobody should think that anyone can. I definitely can't. If you're relying on technicals to tell you when a downtrend has ended, by definition, you're not buying the bottom. You're coming in later. But so and you're, and you're, but you're suggesting to our viewers that, that the technicals tell you that we're still in the bear market. Yeah. Okay. All right. Straight ahead, we have a big call on one big bank stock. It reports earnings this week. Three committee members own that. We're going to debate that in our calls of the day. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Bertha Coombs, and here's our CNBC News update at this hour. The United States government and the World Bank are sending Ukraine an additional $1.7 billion to pay the salaries of its health care workers and provide other essential items. This comes as Ukraine's Minister of Health says paying health workers' salaries is becoming more difficult each month, quote, due to the overwhelming burden of war. Overall, the U.S. has sent about $7.3 billion in aid to Ukraine since the war began in late February. New research in which doctors transplanted genetically modified pig hearts into people who were clinically dead could pave the way for human trials. Doctors hope that their research model testing pig organs in clinics with brain-dead patients can help reduce the chances that living patients' immune systems will reject new organs. And there was massive destruction in the Brazilian Amazon during the first half of 2022. Satellite images taken between January and June show 1,500 square miles of forest gone. That's more than any six-month period in the seven years of record-keeping. Scott? All right, Bertha, thank you.
Uh, that's Bertha Coombs. City today upgrading J.P. Morgan. That's to buy from neutral ahead of earnings this Thursday. One of our calls of the day. There are many uh, who own it, including Josh Brown, Jim Labenthal and Amy Raskin. You go first and then Steph on the other banks. I want to get your opinion there, too. But, Amy, it's yours. Sure. I think this is a good call. I mean, uh, honestly, Jamie Dimon talking about a hurricane scared me. And um, you never really want to get in front of that. And what did, exactly did he mean? But at nine times earnings, um, the stock's down from 170 to 115. I think this is tactically a good trade. All right. So, Steph, even though you don't own JPM, hmm. um, I think what Kramer said is apropos to some other banks, too. He said, I love that, that call uh, of this one from Citi. Uh, with the Fed uh, hikes, they're going to make a ton of money. You must agree with that as it relates to the ones that you own, which are Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, and then Wells. Yeah, I mean, Wells is the most sensitive to higher interest rates, right? And remember, we started the year at the 10 year at 151. So even though it's pulled back in terms of yields, it's still a moneymaker for these companies. So for every 50 basis point in Fed fund move, um, that, that the Fed moves, um, it's uh, equivalent to 17% to earnings and 6% to net interest income. So they should do a good job. The key for Wells, because you know it's a restructuring story, is it really executing on costs um, and cost discipline. And the big number to watch for is $51.5 billion. That's the number, their expense number for the year. They need to reiterate that. The stock trades at 0.9 times book as compared to JP Morgan at 1.3 times. So yeah, JP should trade at a premium, no question about it. But I just think when you buy something closer to book, that's a better timing uh, mechanism. Mm. Morgan Stanley is just a total, they've diversified the, the business model through M&A. The big number to watch there is ROTCE at 20%. Do they reiterate that going forward? So those are the two that I like. But I mean, they're all cheap, Scott. You just pick the one you, you really feel most comfortable with. Okay. Uh, Jim Labenthal, you own JPM, you own Berkshire, you own City, you own Goldman. Yeah. And in all of these, what I'm looking for are macroeconomic in indications, uh, particularly consumer credit and corporate credit. Obviously, we remember what Jamie Dimon said. I hope he doesn't come back as a meteorologist. Um, but I just want to hear about uh, credit quality and how that's ha uh, hanging in there, hopefully. I think his, uh, what I his actions speak loudly, though. He did not uh, raise the dividend while every other bank on Wall Street did last week. You know, my take on that, it's a good point. My take on that is that the CCAR results were pretty good, but I wasn't thrilled by any of the shareholder return announcements. I really wasn't thrilled by any of them. Um, and you're right, though. Your point is well made. Um, but let me be clear about something. I don't really care about, you know, one company's dividend in this space or one company missing or beating on earnings. What I really care is their insight into the global macroeconomic picture. So uh, their insight will probably be, be not market moving, but stock moving. I just don't think they have any better insight than any of us do. We're in this fog of war right now, uh, perhaps the most dense fog of war I can remember as long as I've been doing this. And I don't think it's any different if you're sitting at the head of a bank or if you're sitting on a trading desk in Chicago or whatever. So uh, I think caution is probably the smart move. And that's what J.P. Morgan did. Goldman Sachs raised this dividend, I think, 20 or 25 percent. Wells Fargo had a big dividend increase, uh, Morgan Stanley and JPM, I think, if they really believe that there's a potential for a hurricane coming, um, is living up to what they said they are, which is a fortress balance sheet. And as a shareholder, I suppose I'm happy about Steph, that. Steph, quick on Amex. It got downgraded today at Morgan Stanley. Uh, Kramer doesn't like the call. He was pretty clear about that earlier today. Amex has been saying their business is good. What's your take here? They also cut the price target to 143 from 223. 
And this is a premier franchise now trading at 14 times forward estimates. And I feel pretty good about at least the estimates for the quarter um, and for the full year because they've been doing a lot of restructuring internally. Loan balance growth is very strong. Uh, credit quality is benign. And billings, they said in May, were consistent with the first quarter. So I feel OK about the story. The stock is down 14 percent. It's held up relative to the other banks. But um, this is one that I think is a, a quality franchise on sale. Yep. All right, coming up, more price target cuts to big tech today. We got a big call on the semis going into their earnings as well. We'll weigh in on all of that next. See the Nasdaq uh, there getting a little bit back uh, after the worst day in a couple of weeks. Continues to be a focal point, obviously. Uh, Steph, so you have a number of price targets uh, cut today on some of the biggest uh, of stocks in the market. Apple among them, 173 uh, from 191 at KeyBank. I just want you to opine on, on that. It, it feels like the analysts now are, are having a little bit of a reality check on where these stocks, even as loved as they are, can realistically go. Yeah, it, seems, it feels like a little bit of capitulation. Um, I think that it's interesting that no one's really changing ratings and no one's really lowering numbers at this point, um, which I think is going to have to happen. I especially think it has to happen in the semiconductor space um, because we're seeing probably seeing double, triple ordering going on, and that is yet to come to, uh, to, uh, to fruition yet. So um, I, I would say f stay clear away from the semiconductor companies. You know I own Apple. Um, I still like that replacement demand story. 24% of the people globally have an iPhone eight or lower. Uh, so there's upgrading that could possibly take place. I get that there's China un un yeah, unknowns, but I do think at this point um, the stock has come down enough. It's defensive. They're buying back stock. Accenture just beat and actually only lowered because of, of currency issues. But bookings are running up 20 percent. Um, and IBM is kind of my turnaround cheap play. But I do worry about their exposure to Europe and also the fact that it's held up remarkably well this year relative to the rest of tech. Well, your, your comments on the semis are, are interesting. You, you point to what was a shortage, which in large part you're worried about turning into a glut. And, you know, there are yeah. some interesting notes out today regarding that. KeyBank says uh, their quarterly supply chain findings are, are mostly negative. They're mixed, but mostly negative. In terms of the conclusions they make on stocks, they say their findings are negative for NVIDIA, AMD, Ambarella, Skyworks, Intel, Corvo, Broadcom, Marvell. Uh, I'm sorry, positive for Marvell and mixed for Qualcomm. But I gave you that whole list of stocks. And, and, and Jim, I'll give your take uh, in, in a second on Qualcomm, obviously. But you have real concerns here about the chips as some are trying to get a little more optimistic in, in places. Yeah, well, I have concerns about PCs, smartphones, and Internet of Things. So that's the end markets that I worry the most about. Auto and industrial, not as much. Um, but again, if uh, China, uh, the closures in China were really problematic for the supply chains. So uh, to the extent when it eventually opens up, then you are going to have more of a potential for a glut in some of these markets. Plus, demand is, sl is slowing. Now, that all being said, these stocks are down 20 to 40 percent, and they trade at like 13 to 15 times earnings. But to your point about earnings, we don't know what that E is just yet. So that's why these are going to be a group that, that I watch very carefully, because I'd love to get back into 
Broadcom or LAM Research or even NXPI, but I think it's too early. Goldman looks, Jim, at some of the things that Steph was talking about and says that the, the semiconductor space, because they've come down a lot, at least in part, uh, they think has the most elevated upside relative to uh, October 2022 call prices. So, again, you're on this the Qualcomm trade is along with NVIDIA, which were two of the stocks that were mentioned in that earlier note that I referenced. And in that earlier note, Qualcomm, they said mixed. And the reason it's mixed is because, as Stephanie just pointed out, there's some issues with smartphones, particularly related to demand from China with all the shutdowns that they've been going through. But the reason there's a positive to Qualcomm is because for the last few years, they've been diversifying away from uh, smartphones, still a big part of their business, but into automotive and Internet of Things, which actually are pretty growing areas, and we know there's still a, a pretty muddy chip shortage in automotive. So I actually think Qualcomm or NXPI, frankly, at these prices are really, really cheap. It's a time frame thing. Again, the next month, I don't know. The next six months, I feel pretty good about owning those uh, chip names. Okay, you used the word muddy a moment ago. And speaking of, short seller Muddy Waters is taking a new position. It's in an energy stock. We're following that money. We'll tell you which one next. All right, welcome back. Short seller Muddy Waters taking a new short position in a renewable energy company. Our Leslie Picker following the money, uh, which is a lot lower than it was earlier. Stock's getting clobbered. HASI, uh, Hannon yeah. Armstrong, sustainable infrastructure. What do you know? Near session lows, Scott. Uh, take a look at those shares right now. Currently down about 15.5% on the heels of a short report that you mentioned uh, published by Muddy Waters. Hannon Armstrong says it's the first public company dedicated to investments in the climate solution space with more than $9 billion in managed assets. The stock saw a huge run-up in 2020 amid excitement over ESG tan tangential names. Today's price, though, is about half of where it traded at its recent high in December 2020. Money Waters report says ESG in Hannon's case stands for exaggerated scamming and grifting. The short seller's report takes aim at the company's accounting metrics, alleging that it inflates gap earnings through a loophole in the accounting of renewables subsidies, among other tactics. Money Waters also says Hannon Armstrong's operating cash flow is, quote, misleadingly high, and the firm adjusts it down by 39%. The short seller also takes aim at how the company finances its dividends, alleging that only 9% came from internally generated cash flow, with the rest from equity and debt raises. Muddy Waters says the company has, quote, misleading metrics that drove additional executive bonus payments amounting to nearly $23 million over the last two years. CBC has not independently verified all of Muddy Waters' claims. We've reached out to Hannon Armstrong for comment and clarification with regard to this report. We will let you know when we hear back. There's a lot for them to parse through as well, Scott. Yeah, no doubt. Les, uh, I appreciate it. By the way, Carson Block's going to be on with Sarah at 3 o'clock, so we're going to hear directly from him. What I guess I want to know, Josh, is, is whether you think there's going to be more scrutiny on purported ESG plays in a more heavily scrutinized market itself, right? Yeah. Like well, in, a, in, a, in a bull market, it's easy to say you're ESG. It's the sign of the times. It's the thing of the, the times and the stocks go up. Now in a more fractured market, don't you think there's going to be more scrutiny on that idea in general? Yeah, look, like like all like all good ideas, anytime anytime you get millions of people start to say they're investing in something not because of the fundamentals but for some other reason, that some other reason can be exploited. 
And we've seen it time and again. Uh, but we know this is something the regulators are looking at. They're going to very well-established mutual fund companies, and they're saying, okay, show me how you make a determination what's ESG and what's not. Uh, we also know that there will be opportunistic people. I'm not talking specifically about this company. I don't know anything about it. But just generally speaking, that will um, create this artificial idea of what they're doing for the environment. And then behind the scenes, they'll really be enriching themselves because they've got a buyer of the financial product or security that's not focused on the right thing. So I think you will see a whole hell of a lot more of this kind of thing. Okay. Keep our eye on that stock. It's down 15.5% again, 3 o'clock today. Carson Block of Muddy Waters on closing bell. Let's talk about Boeing. It is the best stock in the Dow today. Now a bullish call is out ahead of earnings this month. We have some ownership on the desk. You know who. Trade is next. All right, Boeing is the top stock in the Dow today. It's up 8%. Deliveries hitting their highest level since March of 2019. Goldman calls it one of its top ideas into earnings. Farmer Jim, the man who has been in the cockpit on this thing for a long time. Yeah. Tried to climb out a few times, but you just couldn't bring yourself to fully do it. Yeah, it takes a deep sigh before he starts on this. Uh, Mr. Poponik at uh, Goldman Sachs has had his own love-hate relationship with the stock. He upgrades it today, and I sincerely hope this is not another case of Lucy about to pull the football away from Charlie Brown as he's about to kick a field goal. There is one simple thing. It's a complicated story. I'm going to make it very simple. Let's get the 787 deliveries approved by the FAA. It really needs to come this month. It should come this month. That is what will materially move the stock higher in the short term. I know Stephanie owns it. I'm sure she's going to go into some other things. I'm just keeping it simple and focused on 787 deliveries. Okay. Steph? Yeah, 787 deliveries, but also China approving the MAX, right, and recertifying it because a third of their MAX backlog is in China and with Chinese airlines. So that has to happen. Both of those things happen. You'll have an inflection in terms of free cash flow, and that's what the stock trades on, free cash flow. You want to give me a quick thing on Delta, which reports tomorrow? You, you own that yeah, stock still? Um, yeah, and let's not forget uh, their last earnings call. Uh, Mr. Bastian was positively giddy on the call. I will be very curious to he- see his demeanor and word choice on tomorrow's call, looking for any cracks in the consumer, which should apparently be strong. Also curious if international travel is coming back now that some of the travel restrictions as far as pre-testing before returning to the U.S. have gone away. But it should be a positive report. Fares are coming down, right? Airfares coming down from where they were when you were, were most high. up. They were too high. I mean, we know they're too high, right? You can't, you can't sustain. Yeah, but that has that an impact level. on the bottom line. It does. The other, the other thing though is capacity, right? You need pilots, you need flight attendants. I mean, these yeah. are, these are long term. The, ba- the bad news is that air travel prices are very high. Mm-hmm. The good news is most of them are canceled anyway, so you get refunded. <laughs> all right. So it, it all works. <laughs> it, it all works out. It all right, should quick, be a good report. Quick break. Final trades are next. Well, we have one heck of a lineup today, 4 o'clock on overtime. Adam Parker, Lindsey Bell, Joe Terranova, Mike Mayo, Low Tony's going to weigh in on tech. Jason Snipe. What a show. What right? time is this? I'm telling you, 4 o'clock 4 Eastern Four o'clock. Time. I'll be there. Yeah. Eastern? Thank you. Okay. Eastern. I'll see all of you there in three hours. Thank you. Stephanie Link, final trade. 
Occidental Petroleum, it's down 25% since the beginning of June. It trades at 5.5 times earnings, 5.3 times EBITDA, and they're generating, just last quarter alone, over $3 billion in free cash flow. And Berkshire Hathaway now has an 18.7% position in the company. I was waiting for you to get to the Berkshire part of that st mm -hmm. story. Amy Raskin. <laughs> I'm going to go with Caden. It's a small to mid-cap industrial. It's really well positioned in key markets, such as paper and packaging leading market share in all its end markets and a great management team. All right. Good farmer. Qualcomm, maybe a little boring because I spoke about it earlier, but uh, forward earnings multiple of 10, peg ratio of 0.6, 2.3% dividend yield. Should be safe no matter what CPI does. Okay. Uh, that means JPM is yours, uh, head of earnings. Yeah, listen, uh, one of the cheapest multiples you could buy the stock at in the last 10 years, 3.5% dividend yield. I'll take it. I think it's going to work out. All right. Uh, as I said, earnings coming this week. That does it for us. The exchange is now. I'll see you in OT. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.